The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm Tobias. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Christ the King. And um, Penny is away this week. Uh, and so it's my privilege to uh, open up God's Word for us this morning. And we're going to be continuing with our series uh, on kingdom parables. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at... Um, the parable that begins Matthew 25. So I invite you to go ahead and open up to Matthew 25. <clears throat> and let's read that together. And you know, let's take uh, careful attention to this. Remember, this is God's holy and inspired word. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. And then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at night, at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, <clears throat> those who were ready, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. A gracious and mighty God, Lord of all, creator of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen, we bow before you. We bow before you and we humble ourselves before your word. And we ask, Lord, now that you, by your spirit, will open us up, that you will penetrate deep with your words, that you will use this parable to teach us more about who you are, what you've done, and what you call us to as we wait expectantly for your return. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> well, so the, the parable that we're looking at this morning, this parable is set within the final discourse of Matthew's gospel. 
And it's one of several parables within this final discourse uh, that comprise the second half of it. And this discourse, you may know, is oftentimes referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, because uh, Jesus has just denounced the Jewish hypocrites uh, with a series of woes. And he's predicted there and the temple's destruction. And now he's left the city of Jerusalem and he's made his way to the Mount of Olives and there he's with his disciples. And having just heard Jesus' pronouncement of judgment on the Jewish leadership and his prophecy of the destruction of the temple, the disciples, as you can imagine, are especially interested in the timing of all of this. And so they ask Jesus privately in Matthew 24, 3, they say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And it's important for us to recognize uh, that what they're really asking is something like this. They're saying, so, so Jesus, when's the temple going to be leveled? I mean, it sounds like that's going to happen when you return and when the world comes to an end. And it would kind of be nice to know when that's going to happen. So tell us, when's that going to be? And so Jesus begins to answer in verse 4. But as the discourse goes on, two things become especially clear. The first is, is that Jesus is not going to give them an answer to the question, when. And the second is, is that the disciples are mistaken in thinking that his coming and the end of the age would coincide with the destruction of the temple, which of course we know happened during the Roman sack of Jerusalem in AD 70. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. You see, here Jesus has clearly begun to focus his attention on that final day of his coming. That great, that awesome day when he would be revealed in all his power and glory. And while this morning I'm not going to uh, get into that rather puzzling comment that even the sun doesn't know the day and the hour, although uh, I'll be happy to talk with you after the sermon. I talked to one guy already. <laughs> we do need to grasp something of central importance for us as human beings. The Lord's return, the timing of his return, is unknowable. Jesus said so himself. He says, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. And as if to drive that point home, the parables that Jesus goes on to tell at the end of Matthew 24 through Matthew 25, including the one we're going to be looking at this morning, they're meant to highlight that very fact, that his return will be at an unexpected time. And they're meant to teach us something about what it means to live as faithful disciples of Jesus, realizing that we cannot be certain of when he'll return. So what's going on in our passage this morning? What's going on in this parable? Well, our ESV Bibles, the ones that we use, they give this the title, The Parable of the Ten Virgins. Uh, 
Other translations, like the New Living Translation, they use the word bridesmaids instead of virgins. But either way, the point in this parable is simply that these are unmarried girls. Uh, and they have a very specific role to play in the wedding festivities. And we'll get to that in a moment. But before we get there, uh, we, need to, we need to notice how Jesus begins this parable. You see, he begins it with the word, then. It seems like an insignificant word. But it's important, important for us to pick up on, because here Jesus is clearly referring back to that day and hour. That unknowable day and hour which he spoke of in Matthew 24, 36. And so, right from the get-go, Jesus is signaling that he's talking about what that day will be like. What his return will be like. And although the basic storyline of Jesus' parable is plain enough, I still think it's easy for us as 21st century Westerners to get confused by some of the details of this parable. And so it's helpful for us to know a couple of things about how first century Jewish weddings worked. You see, there are basically two stages in a wedding. And this could span a day, it could span an entire week. In the first stage, the bridegroom would make his way to the home of the bride, usually her father's house, and the marriage ceremony would be conducted. And then afterward, the wedding party would make its way back to the home of the bridegroom in a great procession so that they all could enjoy a climactic celebration and a wedding feast. And this could go on for a long time. And oftentimes, this final procession would occur at night. Remember, these, these weddings oftentimes could be all-day affairs. And, and this is why we read that the girls brought with themselves lamps. And here we probably shouldn't be thinking of like, you know, genie in the bottle type lamps. We should be thinking of like oil-soaked rags held aloft on a stick. They would need to be replenished by dipping them in some type of vat of oil regularly to continue burning. And so as the wedding party would approach the bridegroom's home after leaving the wedding ceremony, his arrival would be heralded throughout the neighborhood and those invited to the feast would go out to join the procession. And this is where the girls come in. You see, they had a role to play in that great procession, escorting the bridegroom and the wedding party to the celebratory feast. It was a simple but very important role. And they needed to be prepared for the announcement of the bridegroom's approach at any moment recognizing that he might be delayed. And he could be delayed for a host of reasons. You can imagine. Uh, one of them, you know, maybe haggling, to, haggling took too long over the bride's dowry. But herein lies the problem. You see, only five girls, the wise ones, were prepared for a delay. The other five, the foolish girls, they weren't. They hadn't brought oil with them to replenish their lamps in case the bridegroom arrived later than they expected. And so as Jesus tells the story, when the bridegroom's approach is finally heralded at midnight, the foolish girls, the unprepared girls, 
were forced to go and try to buy some oil in order to join the torchlight procession. And whether they ever did or not, the story doesn't tell us. But what it does tell us is that because they were unprepared, they missed out on the procession. And more importantly, they missed out on the feast and the celebration. For they were refused entrance into the groom's home by the groom himself. So what's Jesus trying to tell us here? What's he saying in this parable? Well, for starters, I think it's a mistake for us to try and find significance in each and every detail in this story. For example, I don't think there's any real significance attached to the number 10. That there were five wise and five foolish girls. I think this is simply meant to highlight two contrasting groups. There were those that were prepared and that there were, the, and there were those that were unprepared. And I don't think there's any negative significance in the fact that the girls slept. After all, they all slept, both the wise and the foolish, and yet the wise were still led into the feast. Yes, at times in the New Testament, sleep is used as a symbol for a lack of vigilance. In fact, in a parable just before this one, in the parable of the burglar, that's the way it works. But here it's simply meant to, to add to the realism of the narrative. After all, the bridegroom comes at midnight. Wouldn't you get a little sleepy? And I also don't think there's any clear symbolism to the use of the word oil. Although many, many commentators throughout the ages have suggested things like it stands for the Holy Spirit, or for love, or for faith, or for good works. But all of these suggestions have a major problem, in my view. How could the foolish girls be expected to go and buy such things? No, to get distracted by these incidental details is to miss what's most significant. Friends, this is a story about the unexpected arrival of the King of Glory, Jesus Christ, who is himself the perfect and faithful bridegroom. And of course, this makes sense to us if we've read our Bible. After all, the Old Testament regularly pictures God as the husband of his people. Prophet Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 62, 5, he says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And our Lord Jesus himself picked up on this theme when he claimed identity as the bridegroom, saying to the disciples of John in Matthew 9, 15, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And in keeping with this theme, in the final book of the Bible, the Apostle John in Revelation 19, he spoke of a day when Jesus, the Lamb of God, would return as the faithful bridegroom to receive his bride and to celebrate with her in a glorious feast, saying, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Blessed are those who are invited 
to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, this parable is about that glorious day. That day that is certain to come, but at an unexpected time. And although God's people are elsewhere pictured in the Bible as his bride, here in this parable, they're pictured as ten virgins, ten bridesmaids, waiting for the bridegroom's arrival. But perhaps there's one detail especially that bugs you about this parable. Perhaps you, like many, you just think it's selfish that the wise girls didn't simply share their oil with the foolish girls and so prevent their being shut out from the feast. But this also, I think, is to miss a crucial point of the story. And I think David Garland's comments are helpful. He says this. He says, one might think that the wise maidens should have shared their supply of oil with those who were ill-provided so that all might enter together into the feast. But the, par- but the parable is an allegory about spiritual preparedness, not a lesson on the golden rule. Spiritual readiness is not something that can be transferred from one to another. Did you hear that? And so, friends, the, cre- the question this parable invites all of us to ask ourselves is this. Am I prepared? Am I prepared? Am I ready to meet the bridegroom and escort him to his feast? But unfortunately, I think this is a question that we oftentimes don't ask ourselves. I mean, it's been 2,000 years since our Lord spoke these words. And in the midst of his obvious delay, it's all too easy for us to get distracted by life and to lose sight of the fact that although he is delaying, his return is nevertheless imminent. And friends, when we do this, there's a danger. There's a danger particularly for us who don't know Jesus that we'll put off responding to his gracious gospel, telling ourselves that we'll reckon with who he is and his claims tomorrow. And for those of us who claim to know him, there's a danger that we'll become complacent in our walk or even begin to deny the reality of his return and to begin to live our lives doing our work and treating other people as those who will have no need to give an account for our actions before him at a moment's notice. Friends, this is utter folly. And this parable calls us to ask ourselves today, am I ready? It is the question. After all, when the Lord Jesus returns, when he comes in glory on the clouds of heaven, he will not only usher his people, his faithful people, into that glorious feast, but he will also bring down unspeakable judgment on those who are not ready for his arrival. 
as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, he says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And so like the wicked steward who mistreated his master's slaves in the parable just before this one, thinking that his master's return was far off and who was therefore utterly surprised once his master unexpectedly arrived and brought him to a dreadful account. Or like the foolish girls in our parable this morning who were shut out of the marriage feast because they were not prepared to endure the bridegroom's delay. Friends, we who are not ready for the coming of the bridegroom will find on that day that we have no more time to prepare. And it will be a day not of joy, but of ruin. So friends, how do we prepare? How do we prepare for that day? Well, I don't think the answer to that question is particularly complicated. And I think it starts with knowing and being known by Jesus, the bridegroom. Look again at what the bridegroom says in verse 12. To the foolish girls as he refuses their desperate demand for entrance into the feast. He says, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Do you hear what he's saying? Had he known them, surely he would have let them in, but since he didn't know them, they were shut out in the darkness. Friends, Jesus said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Friends, we need to hear that being prepared for the Lord's arrival is fundamentally a matter of relationship, of knowing and being known by Jesus. But notice what Jesus goes on to say just a few verses later in John 10, 27. He says, my sheep, my sheep, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Did you catch that? The sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and they follow him. Refusing to follow the shepherd will not do. Obstinate sheep are unprepared sheep. And while being ready for the arrival of the bridegroom is fundamentally a matter of being known by him, we need to recognize that when Jesus knows us, when we are known by him, we... He calls us into his family and he calls us into a lifetime of discipleship, of obedience, of following him as the good shepherd. And in that way, being ready for the bridegroom 
means that we who claim to be his followers are daily seeking to imitate him by the power of the Holy Spirit in his kindness and in his forgiveness, in his holiness and in his truth. It means we're feeding on his word and paying heed to it. It means we're praying for his will, not our will, to be done. And trusting in his power and grace to sustain us in our weakness. No matter where we are. And no matter how long he delays in his coming to celebrate with us at the marriage feast. Friends, really in a word, being ready simply means that we are abiding in him. And I'm reminded of what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.28. He says, and now little children, abide Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Friends, this is what it means to be prepared for his arrival. Faithful, enduring discipleship born out of true relationship with the bridegroom. Not our last-ditch efforts like those of the foolish girls in our parable this morning, which were born out of desperation and estrangement from him. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you don't profess to be a follower of Jesus. The idea of a lifetime of discipleship is a foreign idea. In fact, all of this is new to you. But having listened to the words of Jesus in this parable, your heart's desire is to be known by him when he comes. Well, friend, what I'd like to say to you is simply this. Come to him. Come to him and he'll receive you. Confess your sinfulness and your helplessness today. Turn from it and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For he said himself in John 6, 37, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Perhaps you're here today and, and you claim the name of Christ and to be a follower of his. You attend worship, perhaps you even bring an offering. But having listened to this parable this morning... You recognize that you haven't been living in a manner worthy of your profession. In a manner, manner truly prepared for the bridegroom's arrival. Well, friends, what I'd like to say to you, first of all, is look around and join the club. But I also want to say to you this. Listen to the words of your Lord and Savior in this parable and repent of your unpreparedness today. Confess your complacency. Confess your stubbornness. Confess your pride. Confess your hatred of your brother or your sister. Confess your foolishness. Pray the words the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3.16. Only let us live up to that which we have already attained. 
And friends, in doing this, then rest in the grace and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus, the bridegroom, and trust in his power and in the faithfulness of his Holy Spirit to make you ready for his arrival. Confident of this, confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, once again we bow before you, creator of all things, king of the universe, the rightful heir. Oh, Father, we know you are coming, for you have said so yourself. And yet we confess, Lord, that too often we don't think of it and we live our lives in a, as if it's not going to happen. Oh, Father, we ask, Lord, that you will prevent us from doing that. We ask, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, you will cause us to walk in your ways, to keep in step with the Spirit as we await your return. We pray all this in the mighty and precious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.